Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we open your word today, we are in a text that is uh, one of the most well-known in lots of ways. And it's also, Lord, uh, often twisted and abused. So we ask, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, lead us to your wisdom and your presence and your application to what it means to have God work in us. We give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we gather together this morning, <clears throat> we do so in the midst of another election season, both in British Columbia and in the United States. The election this year is beyond compare of any other elections, not only in the scope and the depth of all the political drama and division and propaganda, but more so regarding the trauma and distress and division and fear and anger and pain and suffering and death that has been brought about through a viral pandemic that has literally affected our lives and most of the world. One of the clearest consequences of this kind of emotional perfect storm of negativity seems to be the growing common practice of complaining, which comes from being grouchy and grumpy and irritable and cantankerous and cranky and crabby about something that we don't like and you're going to hear about it. Whether it be Donald Trump or John Horgan or social dis distancing or wearing masks or being stuck in a quarantine if you might be sick or stuck in an isolation if you are sick. So, complaining, or i.e. grumbling, whining, whimpering, murmuring, is common to all of us to varying degrees. we find a great deal of complaining in the Bible. Some well-known biblical characters were world-class whiners. Jacob, Naomi, Elijah, and Job, to name a few. The trophy for the longest and most sustained whining goes to the nation of Israel for 40, 40 years. They grumbled their way from Egypt to Mount Sinai and I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably all who have to admit we have some whiner in all of us. We who claim Jesus Christ even find ways to justify and spiritualize our griping and complaining. We know that because the Apostle Paul speaks about it in the Bible today. And so this is for us too. What we will find in our text is that grumbling and complaining is a sin one that often occurs when things are tough. In our text for today, Paul gives us clear instruction regarding whining and also the cure. If anyone had an excuse to ex complain, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Ever since his conversion from Phariseeism to Christianity, he had been hounded and opposed by unbelieving Jews. At Philippi, uh, gen Gentile businessmen opposed Paul, angered by the fact that he and Silas cast a demon out of a slave girl who was a fortune teller, 
thus destroying their profitable business. Later, Paul took a generous gift from the Gentile churches to the saints in Jerusalem. And while he was there, he gave a generous gift to the Gentile churches through some young men. And some young men went and went into the temple. There he was observed by the Jews who falsely accused him of bringing Gentiles in the forbidden part of the temple. That provoked a riot and it led to a very long, long legal process ending up with Paul's appeal to Caesar. Paul wrote this epistle to the churches in Philippi some 10 years after his first visit to that city. The Philippians stood with Paul as he passionately preached the gospel wherever he went. And they alone financially assisted him and his business in proclaiming the gospel. At the same token, the eyes of all were looking on Paul because he awaited a trial with Caesar. Most people, Christians, continued to remain loyal to Paul, and they stood with him through the times of his preaching. A few chose to, to take advantage of Paul's incarceration as an opportunity to ruin Paul's credibility while enhancing their own standing at his expense. As Paul wrote this letter, he clearly had a cause to complain and to whine and to murmur, murmur about his life. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Paul to do a little whining to the Philippians. They, would, they had seen what's going on in his life. Yet the letter to the Philippian church is one of the most triumphant and joyful books in the entire Bible. In chapter 1, Paul begins by expressing his deep love and concern for the, for the saints at Philippi. And then he describes his travail, his present circumstances, and why he would rejoice in all his troubles, telling them even if a trial would end in death, he would find some joy in that. Paul then turns from his personal circumstances uh, and attitude and conduct to have the attitudes and conduct of the Philippians. And he exhorts them, says, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul shares these words because he saw now the people in Philippi were getting suffering and persecution like he was. And also like Paul, they needed to recognize that suffering was a gift from God, just as their salvation was a gift by God's grace. Paul opens chapter 2, telling them to maintain that love and unity towards one another that he has shown to them. He goes on to say that the basis of Christian Unity is humility, a humility which sets the interest of other people ahead of our own. And he spoke last week. This ultimate example of this is Jesus, who emptied himself and took on sin into his perfectly divine life, ultimately so he could accomplish the work on the cross of Calvary, which ultimately too, would end up with universal acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. And here's where we start today. 
His words after that, he says, right, in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, after having set up the conduct of the gospel, what's required in a general sense, Paul now gets very specific of the terms of what we should be living out in these verses, 12 through 18. In these words, Paul gives us four very specific commands using the imperative form of verbs work out in verse 12, do in verse 14, and be glad and rejoice in verse 18. And it's significant here. When he introduces his instruction here, he says, my beloved, emphasizing the depth of the intimate relationship he had with these in the Philippian church. The tone of these commands is in stark contrast to Paul's words to those in the Galatian church where Paul was dealing with heresy. This intimate friendship with the Philippian church and the bond of love permeates the entire letter that we read here in this book. We see Paul set that tone to urge his beloved friends to persist in what they are already doing, which is they have a history of obedience. He's not calling for repentance. He's just saying, keep up the good work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. The Greek word here in the original language for the English phrase work out is an imperative, a command, which literally means to to work out fully, to accomplish, to, to finish. The word is also in what we call the middle voice, which means it is something we must do, but we really need help to do it. This reflects the biblical truth that we, brothers and sisters, are desperately in need of God and desperately of God's, needing God's power to break through our dead, calloused souls and ignite, ignite the fire of life in our hearts when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, which all empowers us to live over the fallen nature that we still continue to have even after that. Know that this is not a command to work for salvation. Paul is clear by the fact that we are only saved by grace, not by works. We're not saved by anything we do. In Ephesians 8, we read this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, but this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the context of Paul's command in Philippians to let your manner of Life be worthy of the gospel. Working out our salvation means we are to fully live out the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We are fully to live it out, fully. And so working out our salvation is a lifelong process. It's something we, we keep on doing. 
We're not just saved, we have to keep being saved, so to speak. This is working out of our salvation. So it reflects the reality that salvation is not just an event, it's a series of events, a process. Our salvation began in the past and we are working out our salvation now and we're going to be working in outer salvation in the future. Notice also the emphasis on, on salvation of your own. You, your own. There's, there's this discussion here where some people say this is for the corporate church, you, like that. But in the, this context here, it's, it's us as individuals, each, each of us in our own individual faith. The phrase your own seems to suggest that each and every Christian should, as some would put it, to tend their own tend to their own knitting, I hear. How easy it is to focus on other people's faith. And at that point when we're watching other people, we lose the focus of our own, and pretty soon we're we're off the path. Living out our personal faith is working out our own personal salvation. The emphasis of verse 12 falls on the attitude of the Christian to live out their faith in Jesus Christ. We are commanded to do so with fear and trembling. Paul's not talking about working out our salvation with fear and trembling because if we don't, we will lose it. Our salvation is based on the blood of Christ, not on our working out. His work He's already been finished for us. What Paul is saying here is that we need to take working out our salvation seriously. Our salvation is a issue of life or death. Our salvation has eternal implications for everyday life. We should never take our salvation for granted. In fact, if we do take our salvation for granted, it very well might mean that we aren't saved in that we have convinced ourselves we know God when we really don't. That should cause us to have some fear and trembling. Our forgiven, cleansed, transformed, renewed, restored souls are a precious and undeserved gift of God's love, mercy, and grace. Salvation is a serious and precious gift. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is telling us here that God empowers us when he works in us to live out our faith fully in two different ways. He empowers us both to will and to work, to do what is pleasing to God. Without God's power within us, there would be no will and there would be no doing of that will. And then that would mean God is not pleased. So God works in us that we might know his will and do his will, and then he will be pleased. We can never take credit, brothers and sisters, for anything good or godly that we've done because it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen? Now there is and there always has been and always will be a debate about how God works like this. We still suffer from a lack of humility and disobedience when we started that way back in the garden because the debate has to do always with us. 
How, how much good is in us? How sinful are we really? How much free will we have regarding our choosing for our salvation, our, our ability to walk for God? Is that my, our, my part or his part? Well, there's a, there's a truth and tension, tension here that can't be solved within our human minds. But it's, saved, it's, it's clear, very clear in Isaiah 55. God declares, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We just can't figure out how God does his stuff. God's word clearly tells us the work of our salvation and our desire and our ability to work out our salvation is a manner we should be doing it in a manner that would please God. And that, that whole process, we are absolutely and totally dependent on God. He is the source of our power. He is the one who is always working with his power in us. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we know that there is no good word, word or work in our lives if, if, it's, if it's about us. So what about us? Excuse me. Now, this is not about putting ourselves down. This is about raising God up. We are commanded to live out our faith in Jesus Christ with humility because God is the one who is working in us, prompting us to desire and carry out his will. How can we be proud about anything that we do if it's already coming from God. James 1:17 tells us, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights from whom there is no variation and shadow due to change. Deep down inside, we know this. Deep down inside, we know that before Jesus Christ was in our hearts, we were dead to the things of God. And when Jesus came into our hearts, he came alive. But some of us have forgotten what it was like without Jesus. Some of us have forgotten how lost we were before God graciously worked in us and intervened in our lives and saved us. And the danger in forgetting what it is to be unsaved means we can become spiritually numb to anything outside of ourselves if we don't remember those things. And we become spiritually blind at that point, and that means that we will recognize nothing in our sinful nature and everything in our own nature. But the Apostle Paul did not forget. In Romans 7, he said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And at the end of that, what does he say? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Without God's power, we are powerless. Without God's power, we do not have the ability to fully live out our faith in Jesus Christ. The best text here that explains it is Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, work in me. So 
I no longer, I no, he says, I, I, let me go back, crucified. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There it is. Who loved me and gave himself for me. God's work of faith in us is his empowerment to joyfully live out the fullness of the humble obedience of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God's work of faith in us is his empowerment to joyfully live out the fullness of his humble obedience of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. We, we live out our lives. We make our choices. We laugh. We rejoice. We, we despair. We celebrate. We mourn. We work. We play. We get angry. We forgive. We come to faith. We struggle with sin. We feel like we're losing the battle. We feel powerless. We complain. And we can still live if God is in us because God is at work in us. Whatever happens in, in our lives, God is working there if we focus, focus, focus on God in us, working in us. Then we are able to forget about ourselves. God created us in his image out of the dust of the ground and he breathed his life into our bodies and into our souls. And he chose us before the foundations of the world to know him and love him and live for him and live with him forever. We praise God that in him we live and move and have our being, like it says in Acts. Because left alone, our fallen, sinful, prideful, rebellious nature will always cause us to walk off into a corner of darkness of our own. God loves us too much, brothers and sisters, to leave us where we are. He sent Jesus to die for our sons so we might know his life today and forever. And he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us so we might live above that battle too. God himself works both to will and to work for his good pleasure because God's power is working in us. Our wills will please, our, our works will please God. Paul then writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in labor, excuse me, in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul now turns to the power of God to fully live, be lived out in the fullness of our humble obedience to the crucified and risen Christ. What does that look like, he's saying? in our community. In verse 12, we read of the imperative, the command that says we are to work out our own salvation. Now here it's telling us there's a second imperative that we are to do, do all things without grumbling and disputing. The 
pride of grumbling and disputing are, are opposites of fear and trembling. Obedience, which flows out of a self-centered complaining, grumbling, disputing, blaming, is the opposite of humble obedience that flows out of the power of God working in us. In other words, if we are really working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we will do so without complaining about each other or arguing or whatever it might be. That's the power of God working in us. By the tone and and context of Paul's letter, it's evident that there's some friction in the church about this. He brought it up. And we see that specifically in Philippians 4.2, where the Apostle Paul exhorts two women to agree in the Lord. We don't know the nature of what's going on there. Uh, Paul tackled the problem by urging them to uh, use humility and obedience and unity so that it might not tarnish the gospel. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. He said that you may be blameless and innocent. And the truth is, for the most part, we don't set out to get in conflict with people. Hopefully, (laughs) we don't. Most often, we run into it when we bump into other people who sin differently than we do, which happens all the time. The real question for us all is, especially for those of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ, is is how do we deal with our differences? How do we deal with our differences? We didn't start well. Our first relational conflict in the Garden of Eden resorted and ultimately was a murder. And just as the Apostle Paul describes our ongoing war with sin, he says it is our tendency to be at war with one another whether it's with bullets or hard feelings or harsh words. And that is the way fallen humanity lives in a fallen world. But that's not God's way. In Christ, we are to acknowledge and celebrate differences. Imagine if he created us all the same. Yeah. (laughs) In Christ, we are to acknowledge that. And look for that. God created us to be different from one another. In God's family, we are to celebrate those things. And so fear and trembling, we are humble and obedient. And we work it out. All the differences, differences different under obedience and under humility, differences are celebrated. And Paul states his purpose here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing when he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among who you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The ultimate concern Paul has here is for our witness in the world. In other words, our relationships with each other should reflect our individual and corporate relationship that we have with God. People who do not know Jesus will base their opinions and beliefs about how they see we, how, what we say and what we do. Our relational witness, Paul says, should be blameless and innocent, without blemish, in the midst of a 
crooked and twisted generation sounds like today. If God is working in us, if we are living out our faith fully, we will instead shine as lights in a world, holding fast to the word of life. And we will then be humble and obedient and celebrate our differences. We hold fast to the word of life, he writes, when we openly believe in the gospel and when we share the gospel and we live out the gospel. And that the gospel itself, that God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that those who receive him as Lord and Savior, they might be redeemed and restored and having a spot in heaven forever. Here we go. The world needs more Jesus. The world we live in needs the light and life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The crooked and depraved generation we live in is living in darkness, brothers and sisters. The gospel of the word of life offers the light of Jesus Christ. And we are to shine. The crooked and depraved generation live not only in the darkness, they also live in eternity. In the, in, I, I don't think fire <laughs> is a darkness. So I think the folks downstairs, the world needs to see more of Jesus in us. But the world won't see those things if we don't allow God to work in us. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. These two verses are very unique in, uh, for, a, for a closing for Paul. He's speaking uh, about unity and harmony uh, in the midst of knowing the reality that suffering is often an occasion of grumbling and arguing. And he's writing right now about this uh, grumbling and arguing. But we see that in Israel in the, the wilderness. But Paul's got a different attitude towards suffering. He encourages it. He's encouraged that we embrace it. He considers it here, he just said, you know, considered a joy to be a sacrificial offering for the gospel. He could do so because God was working in him to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are, we are called to a sacrificial life of obedience. Our text takes this a little farther. Paul insists that we should go and seek to please God on top of it. In order to please God, we have to have the humble obedience that's joyful, not um, grumpy, complaining, whining, grumbling. Christians are sinning because they are being disobedient to the command to be joyful. They're unhappy, their discontent is contagious. Often it creates strife and division. Discontent is also the first step towards the rebellion against God. Think of this. Before Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, they had become discontented with every blessing had God given them, which was everything. You can do everything except this one thing. Murmuring 
Christians are just one step away from active rebellion against God. Our text not only teaches us that we should be joyful, it also requires that we are joyful. And it requires even more during times of suffering and adversity. Joy and sorrow are not opposites in the kingdom of God. When we pursue a life of living, fully living out our faith in God, and God is really working in us, we will see that sorrow and joy are the same. Our church is going through a bit of this. Our dear brother Hugo has left us and went home. And that is a sad event. Death is. On the other hand, with a number of visits, there was a lot of rejoicing when we're talking about heaven and life. And the rejoicing is he's going home to Jesus. Sorrow and joy are the same in the Christian faith. We rejoice because Hugo is with Jesus. There is no greater joy. And this is precisely what Paul is telling us in the text. Christians are to face pain, suffering, trouble with joy-filled hearts. We are not to get sour. We are not to get bitter. We are not to feel sorry for ourselves or whine or grumble or complain about politicians or elections or social distancing or masks or quarantines or taxes or the economy or the flu shot or the virus or sickness and especially death. We are a joyful people. That's our call. Grumbling and whining and complaining are totally opposite and sin against God. The cure for this, the cure for murmuring can be summed up in one word, worship. In Psalm 73, Asaph whines and complains to God because he has concluded that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. It's only when he comes to worship God that Asaph begins to see things clear and his bitter bitter spirit melts into praise. He writes, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, God, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you, but, but for me, it is good to be near God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Isaiah 64, 4 declares, 
From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen God besides you, who works for those who wait for him. God's word tells us that God works. When he says that phrase, God works for us, that means we can't do the work. We desperately need God's help. We need to praise him for that help. That glorifies God, not us. The powerful one gets the praise, not the weak ones. But that's not our normal Christian experience. If it's true that we do have another life within us, as Christians, we have God's life. But our lives and our hearts and our wills are involved in this too. It is true that we will never be saved apart from God, but it's likewise true that he will never save us apart from ourselves. You see, we do the living and the choosing and the acting, but we know a secret, that all along it is God who is doing it. He is doing the living and acting and choosing through us. And so Paul, again, wonderfully put it, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I now live in my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what Paul beautifully has just laid out for us in this text. He tells us that if Christ truly lives in us, we will do our own choosing and living. And as we do it, God will be at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Proof that God is working in us is that his empowerment will cause us to joyfully live out, fully live out our lives with humble obedience as the crucified and risen Christ. Paul considered it a joy to be a sacrificial offering for the sake of the gospel. He could do so because God was working in him. And in the midst of a world of grumblers and whiners, may we know the power from within as we passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. As the words of the old hymn tells us, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy, to be joyful in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Father, we praise you for just this gift of telling us that you are, are intimately deep in us. You work for us. You, you gave your son for us. Lord, you are to be praised. We are a people that's just complain too much. Lord, we know the world is pretty chaotic. Lord, by your spirit, we pray that we would follow what we've heard this morning and live, fully live for you and let the world be the world and let Jesus be Jesus and let God be God so that, Lord, we can shine for you today 
tomorrow and an eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive God's blessing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.